Well, this morning I'm just going to do a bit of a flyover of the story of Kings. We'll just kind of walk right through the big ideas of the book, and then I'll come back after that and make three observations of what I would argue are the three main emphasis of the book. And so just first off, the storyline. The book of Kings picks up the narrative of God's people, Israel, after the events of First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. It picks up after those events, and then it documents it all the way to the exile of Judah in 586 B.C. And the book of Kings, therefore, then covers a span of some 400 years. And as we have said throughout this series, Kings is not just documenting history. It's doing that, but it's theological history. It's documenting historically verifiable events, but it's doing so in order to communicate God's perspective to us, in order that we might be encouraged to endure and hope ourselves. That's what it's trying to do. So looking at the beginning of the book, we see that Kings, the book of Kings begins with an aging and unceasingly cold David, uh, whose son Adonijah, the older brother of Solomon, he begins to scheme for the throne of David. And this is significant because in 2 Samuel 7, uh, it has told us that God has made a covenant, made a promise to David to have a son that would be sitting on the throne forever. Whoever inherits that throne inherits the promise of God Almighty. But that throne of David was not to be taken by force, as Adonijah tried to do. So eventually, Solomon is, in fact, anointed the true king. Adonijah's reign is diminishing. Solomon then rides into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Sound familiar? Well, immediately though, after this, Solomon comes to be king. After David has died, he sets out to realize that promise God made to David. Uh, He sets out to build a temple to God. And so the author, this is the author's way of telling the story. He's presenting Solomon to us in such a way as to have us to think that maybe he is the answer to God's promise. Solomon begins to... uh, have a throne that is established. The text goes out of its way to tell us that. There's rest on every side of Solomon and Israel at this point, meaning there's no kind of national players coming in to defeat them. There's a great deal of peace. Uh, Solomon asks for wisdom to rule God's people in the good and away from the evil. His wisdom is so well known that the nations begin to stream into Israel just to come and see it. Everything in Israel is going great. It all sounds good. In fact, it even says in 1 Kings 4.20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. In chapters 5 and 6, Solomon then begins to prepare the resources to have the temple built with astounding glory, this temple. There's gold, there's silver, there's bronze of this house of the Lord. And all of this is kind of put together in such a way as to have adornments on this temple that would have us to believe that this is a kind of second Eden, Garden of Eden. But he suspiciously, Solomon suspiciously, takes more time to build his own palace, if you remember that. But regardless, the temple does get complete. And in chapter 8, the ark of the Lord is then carried into the temple by those priests. And we go in, remember the holy place, and then they go into the back room to the holy of holies. They set the ark down, and then they walk out of the temple. And as soon as they do, we read 1 Kings 8, 10 to 11. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. But the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Here, friends, is the high point of the book of Kings. We got gold, silver, bronze, a good and wise king, a son of David ruling with rest on every side. The glory of God descended, dwelling in their midst, his blessing all there. 
And as all of this happens, if you recall, Solomon prays that beautiful long prayer in response. And he prophetically mentions in a portion of that prayer the need to ask for forgiveness from God. Solomon prays in 1 Kings 8, 33-34. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave their fathers. Giving hope to the readers, by the way, the first readers of the book of Kings, because they would have been reading this book in exile because of this. The Lord then appears, though, after this, bringing us back to those initial events. Temple is built. Solomon is doing well. Rest on every side. Solomon prays. And after this, the Lord meets with Solomon a second time. And the Lord says to to, uh, Solomon in 1 Kings 9, 4-7, As for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given. And friends, this sets the framework of the rest of the book of Kings because this is exactly what happens. They do reject the Lord by rejecting his commands and they do serve other gods and they are, as a result, cut off, as God said. And that begins with, of all people, Solomon himself. Solomon, we see in 1 Kings 11, loved many foreign gods. So the beginning of the end of Israel was sinful sexual desire. Solomon takes some 700 wives and 300 concubines, and these wives lead Solomon to do as Israel themselves had been doing and would do. These wives lead Solomon to adopt their forms of worship and in the process lose the way of blessing with God, showing us how and why Israel would eventually wind up in exile. Solomon, though, then dies. His son Rehoboam comes to power. He tries to intimidate the people by making work harder on the people of God. And so instead of unifying the people of the Lord, instead he divides them. He literally divides them. Why? Because of his foolish pride and insecurities as a leader. To try to keep power. He divides them. And he divides them into just two groups. Uh, the northern tribes, there's ten of those. They're often referred to as Israel. They are led by the evil king Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the one of whom is compared to all the other kings of the northern tribes are all compared to. He's a bad king. Remember, he sets those two separate sites that people would come to worship at so that they wouldn't go to Jerusalem. Yet again, another king trying to maintain his power because of his own pride and insecurity. The southern tribe, of course, is going to be ruled by those kings of of Judah out of Jerusalem. And in the north, after Jeroboam, eventually comes this king by the name of King Ahab, who ruled there again in the northern kingdom. Remember, uh, the northern kingdom, the kings of the northern kingdom were pretty much over, unless depending on how you count Jehu, all bad kings. But during the king of Ahab, it is this king and this backdrop that one of the heroes of the book of Kings comes to the fore, and that is Elijah the Tishbite. 
He becomes the archetype of all prophets. In fact, he's such an archetype of prophets, Elijah will even show up on the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament. Elijah doesn't seem to come from any money, doesn't seem to come from any power, any wealth, which is typical, by the way, of the Lord, how he often uses his people. He doesn't need the thrones of the earth in order to accomplish the work of heaven on the earth. He then confronts, Elijah does, confronts the prophets of Baal. He uh, goes to Ahab, who's ruling evilly, and he tells them there's going to be no rain in the region, and so there was. And Ahab, in all of his glory, could do nothing about it because God is king. He then confronts the prophets of Baal. Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal. That was the God of Ahab's wife. Remember, she, Jezebel, she worshiped that God. He challenges them on this great moment up on the top of Mount Carmel. Elijah says to go bring two sacrifices. One is going to be a sacrifice to Baal, the other one to the true God. He has them uh, go up there and begin to see who can call down sacrifice of fire upon that sacrifice there on the top of Mount Carmel. And what must be one of the most entertaining and enjoyable moments in all of the Bible, 1 Kings 18. Because we see the prophets of Baal, they begin kind of doing their thing. They're cutting themselves, they're, wild, they're wailing, and nothing is happening to their sacrifice. And if you remember one of my favorite moments in the Bible, Elijah begins to mock the prophets. You remember that? Remember, he says, maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Speak a little louder. Surely he'll come. But of course, he doesn't. The God of Baal is silent, just as all false gods are silent. Elijah then prays, and what happens? Immediately, fire falls on the sacrifice. Fire falls on that sacrifice, as do the fires of judgment on the prophets of Baal. God speaks. Rain then begins to come after this, and so does Jezebel's threat to Elijah's life. Elijah, showing his humanity, flees the threats of Jezebel. He then goes to, of all places, Mount Sinai, where the Lord reveals himself to Elijah, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, not in the wind. Do you remember what it was? Telling him that he is ruling. God tells Elijah when he thinks all is lost that he is ruling and he is not the only one left. Remember, Elijah thought he was the only one left, but he was not the only one left. But God is ruling and he has 7,000 and has not bowed the knee. Go and ordain Elisha to be your forerunner. Also go and ordain the king of Syria. So he does. Reminding us in that moment, uh, reminding all of God's people to not look to the loud. Don't look to the flashy. Don't look to earthly thrones. But instead, look to the quiet places to see where God's hand is working. Elijah eventually comes out and tells Ahab of the destiny of his judgment. In the midst of this, amazingly, you all remember how evil Ahab was. Elijah tells him the judgment that is coming upon him. Do you all remember what Ahab does? He repents. Of all people, he repents. And what does the Lord do but show him mercy? Amazing. Remember, we said this all throughout this series. Do not let people tell you that the God of the Old Testament is full of all this wrath and the God of the New Testament is full of mercy. The reality is we saw tons of mercy as evidenced by God's mercy to Ahab in 1 Kings. Well, in the book of 2 Kings, remember the two books are one book. They shouldn't be understood as two separate books. We pick up in 2 Kings chapter 1. Elijah's ministry continues as he denounces King Ahaziah And then after he denounces that, he then is taken up in a fiery chariot, having ordained Elisha with a double portion of his ministry. You remember the author carefully documents the eight miracles of Elijah during his time. And then the author goes on to document the 16 miracles of Elisha. 
So these miracles take up a good portion of the early chapters of 2 Kings. And all of this is happening, of course, while Israel and Judah are on a continual decline towards more pluralism and chaos. They are doing increasingly what is right in their own eyes. All of this is happening as that. So the author wants us to see that while the people are sliding down, the ministry of the Lord is trending up subversively through the ministry of Elijah. Out of sight of the power players of the world, but in the sight of God, subversively advancing double worship. And from here to the end of the book, we were taken on a journey of both Israel and Judah's decline toward utter nonsense, chaos, and darkness. The only exceptions being the reform-minded kings Hezekiah and Josiah of Jerusalem. They do bring some kind of reform in accordance with the word of the Lord. But irregardless of this, in 2 Kings 17, we read the exile of Israel from the land. And they're exiled, they're judged because of their prolonged idolatry. And at the end of the book, we also read at the very end, this is how the book of Kings ends. At the very end of the book, we read of Judah, the southern tribes, being exiled as well for their prolonged idolatry. And that's how the book ends, sort of. The temple is is burned down. We read about it just a moment ago. It's then burned down. The palace that was built is burned down. The walls around the city are torn down. Hardly anything remains. The people are out. The walls are down. The temple is down. God's people find themselves east of Eden yet again. In Babylon. And amazingly, back in Egypt. God's people sitting in judgment because of their idolatry. However, I said sort of, if you remember just last week, the book ends with a little teaser, a kind of sequel to the coming movies, as it were, with King Jehoiakim taking off his prison clothes in Babylon and being welcomed at the table of the king, a scene reminiscent of the early days of Joseph in Genesis, who would also rise from a prison cell to prominence, who would eventually lead to a kind of redemption out of Egypt into the land of promise. And so it's as though the either the author ends this way. It's as though the writer wants us to recount the story of Joseph because he believes, the author of Kings believes in the promise that he traced throughout the book of Kings. The author believes that God will answer his promise to Abraham. He will answer his promise to David and he will deliver his people into the covenantal blessings fully and finally in the Messiah, the true and forever son of David. That's why the king, the author of Kings writes. Not just to document, guys, what happened, but why it happened and to the end for which God was bringing it. So there's the book of Kings. There's three main themes that is emphasized throughout this book. You've been hearing me mention them all throughout this series. The first, of course, is that the Lord is king. This is the power of God. The book is emphasizing the fact that the Lord is king, the power of God. And so what is so incredibly obvious throughout this book is that men, and in the case of the wicked queen, Queen Athalia, women, believe, kings believe in their own power, as so many still do today. They get so intoxicated with their own ability to control certain events and the narratives around them that they altogether forget or maybe never even realize that none of them are in complete. Only God is. Every single queen, guys, or king on planet Earth is either dead or soon will be, save one. 
Not only that, the wickedness of their manipulation, all, these, uh, all the evil kings, whatever manipulation and prideful boast that they do as a result of their policies that get enacted. To be clear, all rulers today and, and even in history, they do enact all kinds of terrible things, sometimes good things. Uh, the, but they bring about all of these devastating policies oftentimes, the wicked rulers of the world. But those effects are awful as they are. They are but a moment. There is but one true and lasting king that governs the affairs of the universe, and that, friends, is the God of the Bible. And that comes so clearly, comes through so clearly in the book of Kings. God is the one, as we saw, that he says there's no rain in a region. There's no rain. He's the one that says, all right, bring it back, and so there's more rain. Right? The miracles that we saw, God can raise the dead. God can feed entire armies by night. He can make an axe head float. You remember these things. So no matter how much power someone may think themselves to have, we must know, beloved, their power in the earth is like a leash on a dog. God alone is sovereign. And so we can take, for example, the events of 2 Kings 18. You all remember that? The, the invading armies of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Remember, he shows up. Remember, they descend upon the land of Judah and King Hezekiah. They roll up to the gates of Jerusalem, having conquered many other nations before them. And with great confidence in themselves, they then say to the uh, Judaites sitting behind the walls in Jerusalem in 2 Kings 18, verses 28, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver you, and this city will not be given to the hand of the king of Syria. Don't let him say that to you. Remember him? They go on to say in verse 33, Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his hand out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Y'all remember this? In other words, they're showing up, having defeated everybody, going, We're undefeated. You're weak. We're going to win. Don't start talking about trusting in the Lord. Deliver you. And what happens? In a night, they're smoked. Boom. This is the sovereign God of the universe. In our day, friends, China, for instance, has tried to smash God in all of their fleeting glory. And what has it gotten but a revival that no man could have ever predicted? Voltaire and many other Enlightenment thinkers of the 18th century predicted the death of God only to find the very opposite happened, revival breaking out. The Lord shows himself to be the king of the world. He is the one that makes the heavens and the earth. And every generation that boasts in itself will wind up just as Assyria did. Defeated. While God and his church and his purposes march on, oftentimes out of sight of the world. Friends, I have gone on record as saying that I believe it is my conviction. I may be wrong. I am not a prophet, to be clear. I'm not a son of a prophet. However, it is my own lines of thinking, in light of my study of Kings, it is my belief that the days in America as it relates to the advancement of the church, the wealth of the church, the good of the church, it is my conviction and belief that the years in front of us will be some of the best years in the history of America. And I get there from our study of Kings. Because as we've seen in this book, the more idolatry rises up, the more God just hands them over to the passions of their flesh. And there amidst that spiritual decline, God raises up an incline amongst a remnant, so that he will get the glory. That's what we see. And I trust that's what will happen and even is happening today in our nation and in other nations. He brings about his will, we see, by his word. So we notice, right, that he not only is king, 
But the way in which, remember in Kings, we've seen the way that he's bringing his rule about, the way that he's enacting his rule, oftentimes is through the word. We certainly saw that many times in the book of Kings, where all these amazing miracles, where God just sort of does things here and there. But oftentimes, the regular din of the book is that he's bringing about his rule through the word of God. Take, for instance, Solomon. We all think of Solomon's wisdom. But friends, that was not the key to the blessing of Israel at that time. It wasn't Solomon's wisdom. That was great, to be sure, but that wasn't the heartbeat to make it go well. I take that from 1 Kings 3.14. Right after Solomon asks for wisdom and receives it, then the Lord reminds him in 1 Kings 3.14, If you'll walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. In other words, friends, it wasn't the wisdom of Solomon that was the key to the greatness of Israel at that time. Great as it was, and helpful as it was, and important as it was. But it was his willingness to sing along the melodic line of the word that would bring them into glory. Time and again, didn't we, throughout the book of Kings, we hear of prophets with the word of God in their mouths declaring God's word to kings' ears, and there we see God's authority being communicated. Right? We can think about the man of God. You all remember the man of God? This is the guy that got mauled by the lion, 1 Kings 13. Remember him? He predicted years in advance that there would be this king, Josiah, that would bring reform. And, of course, it happened. And y'all remember how Josiah brought the reform. What started it? He heard the Bible. And then he tried to live it out. That's what it was. We also read of Solomon after the dedication of, of the temple in 1 Kings 8.56. What did Solomon say? After all of this was coming together, he said, Not one word has failed. Of all his good promises. Not one word. Friends, God is king. All other kings are fleas in comparison to his rule. And he rules by his word. And so the question, therefore, then for us is, as we step away from this book, are you and I going to submit to the lordship of Christ, submit to all of his good authority as evidenced by our submitting to all of his word? That's the question we have to wrestle with ourselves. Or, that's option one, submitting to all of his word. Or, option two, as is fashionable in our own place and time, are you carving out your own kind of canon within a canon? In other words, are you carving out the commands that you kind of like and think reasonable and then cutting away the commands that you don't like and are not popular? Is that what you're doing? And by the way, those commands that you're not following, that you don't want to follow, that you don't like, and you kind of shove away, Do those commands that you shove away, do they happen to match the cultural winds around you? Or maybe the friends around you that you're seeking to be a part of? Because if so, friend, that really means that you or the culture is king, not God. So take, for instance, all of the hot button issues of our day in our city, in our time, 2023, Washington, D.C. Just think about all of this. Walk into all those hot bishops, take abortion, take sexual immorality, including homosexuality, take transgenderism, take, take women in pastoral ministry, take the exclusive, uh, exclusivity of the gospel, take all of the corporate commands of Christianity, not just the individual ones. All of these things, friends, are uniquely challenged in our city and our time. These are the gods that are around us. None of these things that I just, those little, that list I mentioned, none of those things are unclear in the word. I recognize that people would say they are, but I would just offer 2,000 years of Christians reading the Bible. And even today, most Christians 
understand those issues very clearly to be taught in the Bible. It's no coincidence that these issues in particular are the ones we're tempted to give up against. Why? Because they are part of the gods that are around us. And so if you go to Nigeria or if you go to Indonesia, they're going to have a whole different set of cultural things that they're going to be tempted to give up on from the Bible. Cultural conditioning, friends. This is what got the Israelites exiled. Don't forget that. We are being discipled every single day. And there's no coincidence that the things we're tempted to give up on happen to be the same thing that the culture is trying to press on us. Think about how cultural conditioning got the Israelites exiled. They said in 2 Kings 17, 14, says that the people wouldn't listen but were stubborn. And then it says in 2 Kings, the very next verse, 17, 15, they went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations where that were around them. They became what they beheld, what they loved. And so, friends, we are going to need the Lord's strength. We're going to need the Spirit's courage to testify to our spirits so that we would gladly and happily submit to the Lord as King as evidenced by our not just saying what God says about those issues that I mentioned, but by following whatever the Lord tells us. And and I want to be clear about this. We follow the Word not just because we're told to, And secondly, we follow it not just because the Lord, by objective truth, is king, but we follow all of his commands because we believe he's good, because we love him, because we trust him. That's why, right? It's it's not just because it's true when you need to do it, I'll do it. No, I love him. We trust him, right, as a church, don't we? That's why we want to follow all of his commands. And so in this day and time, guys, in 2023, Washington City, we are going to have to be like Naaman. Do you all remember Naaman that came in with all of his glory? What did it take to get him healed? He had to repent of his pride, humble himself, follow the word of the Lord. And only then was he healed. So it will be for us. Everybody follows a word. So, friend, if you're a skeptic, not a Christian here this morning, so glad you're here. You follow a word. You follow some words. You follow some kind of little G or capital G God. And so we as Christians, we follow Christ as our supreme authority. He's our king. And because his word is true and shown itself to be true, we're going to follow him, even when it's hard for us sometimes. The Lord is king, not us. He has the power. He has the glory. And the book of Kings teaches us that we must follow him as evidenced by following his word. Second emphasis in the book is the Lord alone is to be worshipped. Because he's king, therefore, secondly, he alone is to be worshipped. This is what we call oftentimes the primacy of God. The power of God, the primacy of God. The Lord alone is king, therefore, he alone is to be worshipped. We can think back to those times just a couple weeks ago when Josiah cleans out the temple. Remember, he kind of cleans it out like a hoarder's house. He drags all out those idols, right? The idols to Asherah, the idols to Baal, the male cult prostitute houses. As he brings all that stuff and burns it. Friends, if God would tolerate worship like that, then why would he call them to do that? But of course, he doesn't, which is why he called them for that reform. The Lord is jealous for his own glory because he knows all other gods are sinking sand. That's why he commands for our good to have no other gods before him. And by the way, meaning when he says the, the, no other gods before him, that doesn't mean like in a list of gods. He means in front of him. No other gods before him, which is why he called him out. Or we can think back to the conclusion of Solomon's prayer of dedication. 
He prayed that they would follow the Lord. Y'all remember this? Why did he want them to follow the Lord? 1 Kings 8.60 That all the peoples of the earth, not just Jerusalem, it's not just a regional God, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. So what provoked the anger of the Lord in the end was how Israel played the harlot to God. How they forsook him in favor of following other gods, which of course are no gods at all. And so we learn from this in the book of Kings. The Lord is king and he alone is to be worshipped. He alone is to be worshipped. All other gods are to be rejected. And I realize that there are few things uh, that are more hated in our city than that statement. Not lost on me. People in our day are fine if you love the Lord, if you say you love the Lord. Call yourself a Christian, read your Bible, go to church, right? That, they're fine with that. The problem in our day, in our place, in our time, is when you begin to say things like I just said. No, the Lord alone is to worship. You need to repent and follow him alone. That's when you cross the line in our city, in our place, in our time. Because the thinking goes in our place, the gods that are sort of around us, the thinking goes that there are many roads that lead to the top of the mountain. There are many roads that lead to God. I had a conversation with a neighbor just the other day that insisted in his Hinduism that there are many ways to God. And the moment that I tried to say there was only one, he would have none of it. And this, by the way, was someone not from this country. It was a universal idea, but nevertheless reflected here. So uh, this aspect of teaching in our day, in our time, uh, would have us to believe that that, that parable of the blind men touching the elephant. Have you all heard that before? Surely you have. The different blind men touching the different part. They just don't know. That's the kind of parable of our day. And the bumper sticker of our day is this bumper sticker of tolerance or reject authority. Two famous bumper stickers. You see them all over our city. But we should understand two things about this line of pluralism, thinking there are many ways to God. We should understand two things. First, we should understand that it is not only Christians that are making claims of exclusive worship. You go, If a Muslim or an Orthodox Jew were sitting here this morning, they would all agree with this part of what I'm telling you right now. They would say yes. They wouldn't say that my truth is true, but they would say that yes, there's only one way to God. So this is not an exclusive claim of Christians to say that there's only one way. It comes down to a matter of truth. Which one is right? Which one is true? All of us, though, are making claims of exclusivity, which leads to the second claim. So it's not just an exclusive claim of Christians. This is true of all major world religions. But secondly, the claims that all religions are equal is not any less exclusive than the claim that there is one true religion. Let's say that again. The claim that all religions are equal, in other words, there's many rows to God, is not any less exclusive than there is to say that there is only one true religion. Both claims are making exclusive claims. In other words, all I'm saying here is everybody at the bottom of it all makes an exclusive claim about God when you actually trace it back. Nobody says this better than Tim Keller. I've used this quote a lot. It's so helpful. He says... He says, it's not more narrow to claim that one religion is right than it is to claim that your way of thinking about religion is right. They're all exclusive at the bottom of it. And so as much as, uh, and as hard as we try to be so ecumenical in our city, the reality is at the bottom of it all, we all eventually cross a line that believes one way to think about God. And so we're saying as Christians, we believe that to be true, that God alone is to be worshipped. We're being consistent. We're being open. We're being honest about it. King shows us that the Lord justifiably calls for us to worship him and him alone. 
To do otherwise is to do as Israel did and provoke his anger, leading to exile. Exile from the promised land. And not only that judgment, friends, but eternal judgment in hell. We saw that. That's been so clear in the book of Cain, which is what Jesus talks about so much when he's talking about his kingdom. Exile and eternal judgment for those that do not worship him and him alone. And friends, this is not only consistent with what the Lord has told us in his word. This is not only consistent logic. It's good. It's good because we believe God is the author of all that is right and good. He, as we learn, is love. He is righteousness. He is truth. And he's revealed in the person of Christ. Therefore, to worship anything else as God would be to follow something other than the way of blessing. Which explains all those times in Kings where the Lord says that if you follow me, it'll go well for you. If you don't follow me, it won't go well for you. What the Lord is saying is like, I'm blessing. I'm truth. I'm light. I'm grace. I'm love. Follow me. And the second they got off the path, they went to a a path of cursing. So it is for us. Third point of emphasis in this book. The Lord is king, therefore the Lord alone is to worship. So thirdly, well, can we trust him? And that's the third emphasis of this book. Namely, that the Lord, the Lord is faithful to his promise. The Lord is faithful to his promise. We can trust him. This is what I said a lot, the promise of God. We have the power of God, the primacy of God, the promise of God. God is king. He alone is to be worshipped, and we can trust him. We can follow him because he's faithful to his promise. And I want to be clear. Y'all notice I said he's faithful to his promise. Now, I could have said, and that would be true, his promise says. That's true. But I'm emphasizing the singular. He's faithful to his promise. Right? Kings means to trace for us the line of David because of the Lord's promise to David. Y'all remember after Solomon's fall? Do you remember what happened? Solomon fall, and right after that, in 1 Kings 11, six times the Lord said he's going to stay faithful for my, ser- for my servant David, for my servant David, for my servant David, for my servant David, six times. I'm going to stay faithful for my servant David. Kings is tracing this promise to David. And we even read in 2 Kings 8, 19, such a good verse, that even though Judah had not been faithful, you heard Chris pray this, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of his servant since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. God is faithful to his promise. So that's why the author, by the way, is so carefully documenting moms and dads. Some of y'all ask me that. Why do we need to know about moms and dads? Because the author is carefully tracing the line of David so as to expect an answer to it in that line. It's tracing the line because it's tracing the promise of God to a forever king in the line of David. It wasn't Solomon. It wasn't Rehoboam. It wasn't Asa. It wasn't this next king and this next king. And it wasn't Ahab. And it wasn't Jeroboam. And it wasn't Jeroboam. And it wasn't Jehoking. We get to the end of the books and we're like, well, who's going to be? Till it comes. This is why the book ends the way that it does. The author wants to go out of his way to have you and me expect an answer to that promise. But Jehoiakim is out of prison. Things seem to be going well. You can still believe God's going to be faithful to bring about a king, a forever king. Jehoiakim, friend, had a son who had a son who had a son whose name was, do you know? Jesus Christ. Just go look at the book of Matthew. You can read it, Matthew chapter 1. You can follow that genealogy. You'll see Jehoiakim's name in there. And it traces right to Jesus Christ. 
Today's Palm Sunday. Do you know what they called Jesus on Palm Sunday? Do you know what that refrain was when he came in? Do you remember, by the way, how he came in? Does it sound familiar? Can you think of any other kings? He came on the back of a donkey as an anointed king into Jerusalem? Solomon. Jesus. By the way, remember, he ordered the events of that donkey. Fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Fulfilling what was seen in the son of first son of David, Solomon, when he came in. But do you remember when he came in on the back of that donkey? Do you remember what the crowd said of him? Do you remember how they called him? Matthew 21, 9. Let me rehearse, refresh your memory. Jesus comes in, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, son of, you say it, David. There he is. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And guys, when they said son of David, they weren't just praising the Lord for a biological son. That's true, but that was not why they were praising him, right? They knew, they were well aware of the fact there was plenty of sons of David that were terrible kings. What they were saying when they used that phrase, Hosanna, son of David, is they were referencing a title. This was the answer to the promise that they had waited so long to realize. Jesus was the answer to God's promise to David. He did come in the fullness of time, not only to redeem Israel, but any and all that would do just as Ahab and Josiah did, any and all that would repent of their sin and their idolatry and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, trust in that king. The only thing about the answer to this promise, though, was that it would not break in as the Jews in that day believed. And we're going to, by the way, we're going to think about this after Easter a little bit more, but On that Palm Sunday, when they're saying the son of David, they believed that they were on the precipice of a kingdom renewed on earth as it was before. That's what they thought. As it was in the days of Solomon and uh, David, they were thinking a physical kingdom was about to come in by force. Rome was about to go out. The days of David are about to come in. That's what they thought. They never understood as Pilate himself did not understand at Jesus' trial when he asked him if he was a king. And Jesus responded, my kingdom is not of this world. They didn't get that doesn't need to be taken upon force and kind of set up this new earthly king of glory. So what winds up happening is after Jesus comes in, he leaves the streets of cloaks and palms. I always feel the need to say this. Why do we call it Palm Sunday? Why not Coat Sunday? But anyway, right? Jesus, right? He leaves the streets of cloaks and palms. He goes straight to the temple where he cleaned it out. He cleans out the temple of more idolatry and hypocrisy that accumulated yet again. Showing, guys, that we all, myself included, we can't get away from idolatry. And afterwards, he cleans it all out. Afterwards, he then predicts the tearing down of that temple and the raising up of that temple in three days. Referencing, of course, who? Himself. He was the temple. He was God in their midst. Referencing his own body. Jesus knew his kingdom would break in unlike David's and Solomon's. He knew it would not come in in the fire and the wind and the earthquake. He knew that it would come in the whisper. As he taught in the parables, it would come in quietly, small and seemingly insignificant until it penetrated the nation so broadly that when he returned after his ascension, he would have a people from every tribe, tongue and nation. And all the kings of the earth, this is true, this is a promise, all the kings of the earth on that day, upon the return of Christ, they will bow the knee to the true king. But before this could happen, 
he needed, Jesus needed that temple to be destroyed again. He needed to be exiled southeast of Jerusalem by going to the cross for all of the idolatry of those that repent and believe upon him. Jesus knew he needed to be an atoning sacrifice for sin. And so as he hung on the cross above his head on that cross was both his crime in an earthly sense and his testimony, king of the Jews. Upon his death, we know that the old covenant was eradicated because the veil is torn from top to bottom there in the temple so as to indicate that all that trust in him can go in to meet with God. His blood having assuaged the anger that our sin has provoked in God. His body then torn. He then, his body's taken down, buried. Three days later, the temple was rebuilt in Christ. We'll think about that more next week. Christ was born again from the dead, and and this temple, the temple of Christ, was far more glorious, by the way, than Solomon's ever was. And amazingly, 40 days later, he ascends to the heavens, sends the Spirit. Guess who's the temple now? Jacked up folks like me. And he's building his temple, God's presence inside of his people all over the world. And he reigns as every king will not. The kings of the earth, friends, do their bidding today just as they did in the days of Ahab, Jehu, and Athaliah. But they are not in control just as they are not in control in our study. Christ continues to rule. He is making all things new. His kingdom is breaking in unhindered in every single nation. And yet I know, guys, sometimes it doesn't feel like that. It didn't for me on Monday. It didn't feel like Jesus was king that day. There's been days since then where it still doesn't feel that way. I'm sure maybe you're going through stuff right now where it doesn't seem like Jesus is king and making all things new. But friend, neither did it feel that way to Elijah. You remember that? He thought he was the only one, that everything was lost. And the Lord reminded him through the whisper, I'm still alive. There are 7,000 that have not bowed to me. I'm sure that it also was not lost on those early disciples when they wondered after Jesus had died. Was he king? Was he thought who who they were? But of course, it was real real that they did. Friend, neither did it seem as though God was king as Jesus hung on Good Friday. And yet never before was God ruling than in that moment. Everything seemed lost, and yet God was in control. He was winning by losing. Christ Jesus, the son of David, was ruling as he bled. Suspended between earth and heaven, Christ Jesus, our King and Lord, was ruling when all else seemed lost, just as he was ruling when Judah was in exile and they thought that all was lost. So, beloved, I plead with you as we step away from the book of Kings on the brightest day and the darkest night, never forget that the Lord is King and he is worthy of all of our love and trust because he has shown himself to be faithful, Turn from idols. Turn to him, the son of David, the king of kings, and the Lord of worlds. He is worthy of your devotion. Follow his commands. Walk in the way of blessing. And join in the people of singing on that Palm Sunday. Son of David, Hosanna. Join in those praises. And remember when all else seems lost. I'm going to end with this. Remember when all else seems lost. When we seem like, when we look at the world, like everything's going bad and God is not ruling. Not only, most importantly, remember the cross. But remember that little testimony of Elijah to his servant. Do you all remember that? 
one of my favorite stories. He walks, the servant strolls out in the morning, and he walks outside, and what does he see? But Elisha is surrounded by the entire army of Syria. And he comes back into Elisha and says, what do we do? And Elisha hadn't even had his morning coffee said to him, there's nothing to be feared. Remember that? He said, he then pointed him, he pointed his servant to the unseen realities of the chariots of horses and fire that were surrounding him. And Elisha said to his servant, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are for you who are with them. Learn to see, guys, spiritual eyes, knowing Christ is yours, and he will come again. And we will have our reward, a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for all that you have taught us through this book. We still have questions. There are still things we don't understand, still things that are strange to us. But Lord, these main themes, that you are king, you are working out your will through your word. Therefore, you are worthy of all of our worship, alone worthy of our worship. And we can trust you because you've been faithful to your promise to David. And Jesus, we thank you that you were the greater David, the greater Solomon. As Jesus, you yourself said, something greater than Solomon is here. And so it is. He's even here this morning. We rejoice, Jesus, that you're king. We still weep. We're still perplexed. We still wonder. We're still like Elisha's servants. And all we see is the Syrians. We still like those disciples sitting so often in our rooms, scared, thinking all is lost. Remind us that Jesus rules from a cross. Remind us regularly that you so often don't work in the earthquake, the wind, or the fire. But you work in whisper, out of sight of the world, because you don't need those things. We trust you. It's hard, God, to do that. Help us. We need you, and we trust you. May those that do not trust you this morning come to do that. And may we bear testimony to the kingdom of God. We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory, not our own.